when I went into this, and my, my background being a working class boy, is we were kind of brought up with three values when we were kids. Or we were taught three values. They weren't even values. They were more just like identities. And the, the three things were, one, men don't talk. Two, men can fight, um, especially where I was from. And three is that you look after your woman. That's how it was. Welcome to the Full Stop Podcast. And today is going to be a really special one. We have, of course, the gorgeous Sarah Lawrence and Berenice Smith. But we have, because this is a show about the boys, Robin Hadley and Rod Silvers. Welcome, gentlemen. It's really great to have you here. Honoured. Honoured, Michael. Morning, everybody. <laughs> Hiya. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So what we're going to do is the girls are going to fire some questions at us because the idea is is that um, our audience wants to know how us guys think because we don't talk a lot. So hopefully between the three of us, we, we don't mind having a chat. So we might be able to uh, enlighten you on how us guys deal with being childless, not by choice. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we've, we had a chat beforehand and we've had some responses to the um, to all the past stuff we put out onto social media. So we asked our audience if they would like to ask any questions because this is quite a unique opportunity. Um, lots of our community may be childless for lots of different reasons and they may have questions that perhaps they felt they couldn't ask their partners or perhaps they aren't in a relationship themselves and are worried about that too. Um, one of the big questions that I wanted to ask, and this is one that you've talked about before, Robin and Michael, in one of the World Childless Week seminars that you did. And it's a big one because we carried it through. And Sarah, you talked briefly about it from Tessa's point of view, about the idea of being trusted with children. As men, how does that feel when you're in a situation where you're being asked to to take care of a child, are you ever asked to take care of a child as a man who doesn't have children themselves? That's a big question, a difficult one to kick off with, but I thought I wanted to get that <laughs> elephant out of the room first, I'm because I know I've had this from my partner's point of view. I've seen this happen to him. Bloody hell, we are starting off bigger. I know, it's yeah, gone it's straight in there. <laughs> uh, can I go, Rod? Um, yeah, please, go on. I don't think I have been as, uh, asked to take care of a child myself. I think when I was married the first time, we did babysitting. And certainly when we were courting as uh, early 20s, we were babysitters because we were a couple. But I, I think I sort of tagged on to my then wife's already arrangement, and that was with a family. But... Uh, not for that babysitting toddler uh, type thing, no. Um, and I think, uh, well, I know, I offered to people who know have got kids, you know, and they obviously want a babysitter, well, why don't you drop the kid off around here? But I then qualified that by saying, well, you know, my wife is a health, well, is a health professional and work with children and specialises in babies, so... Um, I guess I'm putting in a, a safety barrier there 
straight away. But I think men are viewed generally as um, a bit of a threat. Mm. And certainly there's some research about in the UK around um, male early years teachers and how they're seen. Uh, And they they act differently than uh, equivalent women uh when it comes to dealing with uh children yeah i can understand that there's that safety barrier required i my husband's been in a position where um he was kind of not viewed particularly well viewed insensitively um i mm. saw it with with someone oh well you know what would i take the child she said well no i don't feel like i, I want to do that for my mental health mm. but you can ask my husband he may do that mm. oh no 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 I, i'm not going to ask him um he did you know no no not at all and nothing no reflection on my husband's personality i know that he actually would make a, a far better father than i would a mother i'm quite sure um he has far more patience than i do but it was that perception that underlying current of no you're not to be trusted because i don't know your history and i can just imagine that there must be a very different very difficult parallel between being open about being a man who cannot have children for whatever reason that might be to not wanting to say your story but actually being perceived in a very very different way Mm. I think also there was something going around in my head then now forgotten that's good isn't it Um, yes it will come back what about you Rod have you got any thoughts on this yeah uh, my guys are twofold really um a twofold answer um one um i think you mentioned it there Beverly. so i think it's perspective a lot of it's about perspective um you're absolutely right there's that trust element but i also think it's 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 just not the norm to a lot of people a bloke looking after kids on their own i mean when i was when i was still married um, we looked after a couple of kids and it was absolutely fine because a woman was around. I think it's just the society's perspective of a norm of a bloke just babysitting kids just doesn't fit. And I think that's not necessarily just about trust, I think it's about education. And again, going back to this male-female thing, I think the, the thought of a bloke looking after a couple of young kids just doesn't sit the perspective. And I think it's quite weird because I think it's also about relationships. Bizarrely, people, uh, listen, my dear, lovely people, this has just weirdly happened in the last week. Across the road is my old mate, Emery. Um, and last year, I went to The Hague in Holland to do um, Midsummer Night's Dream. And he's got two kids, um, gorgeous kids. And one of them's one years old, Raph. And just the other day, I babysitted for them. And that's the first time I've babysitted on my own as a bloke. Um, since my teens, I think. And it was quite weird because I know them and they trust me and they're really, really good mates. It was sweet as an app. Obviously, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? At one point, they started to talk <laughs> for me. But the sort of point is, one, it was lovely to do it. Two, they trust me. And three, weirdly enough, I, I until you just brought, brought that question up, I'd never actually even thought about it. I'd never even thought mm. about it. But now that you ask it, it's like... Yeah, that is strange. But I think it's purely because they know me and they trust me to do it. Um, It was just, 
it just felt real. It felt right. I know these kids, I adore them, they really like me. <laughs> Obviously they're a bit nuts to like me, but and they're only little, and Raph is only one years old, but he's, it was really sweet because he got upset the other day and he fell asleep on my chest. And it was a really, really odd feeling. You felt very protective of him, like he's your own kid. Um, and I'd never thought about the idea of a bloke babysitting on their own, because to me it just felt norm. But I don't think it's our issue, I think it's society's mm. issue. As you were saying, asking a bloke to babysit a couple of little kids is just not a done thing. And I hopefully that, I just think hopefully that will change and people won't have that perception. They'll just see it as another human being looking after a couple of kids. I hope so, because I, th I think I find it hard even just for, for me. I'm really lucky, and I've mentioned her before in a couple of previous episodes. I have a really good friend who has two teenage daughters, and luckily I have her in my life. I'm so fortunate because she just trusts me with her children. Yeah. I think that had I not had her, I would have had a much more different experience um, and been very, even more cautious than I am now. Um, yeah, you're right, Beverly. I think we're kind of almost the psyche is we're built in uh, mm. us people to be able. Uh, there's almost a psyche thing where we have to be the cautious ones because yes. we haven't got the kids, and actually, it's it shouldn't be like that. You know, just because you can't have kids, don't mean you can't go and look after kids. Um, I mean, I remember when I did my film, there was a line I put in because it was all about things that people say, and there's a little bit where. Um, a bloke saying, well, actually, I don't want to say this live because of the sensitivity of it, where he, where he says a line, us fathers are going to go and get together and have a word with this bloke. Um, and the reason I put that line is because why couldn't it just be us men? Why does it have mm. fathers? Because automatically that just... Um, it, uh, you're not part of something. You're not part of something. And I think going back to the, the, the original question, looking after kids, I think it's the same kind of thing. I think in order to go look, if you're a father, someone might say, come and look after me kids. If you're a bloke, just a bloke, I think it changes it. I think it changes the culture of that. Does that make sense, guys? It changes the word. Yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And that's the point I was going to make. So I'm glad you, you brought it up. Yeah, there, there could well be a hierarchy there. But if you've got a father and therefore you can have that badge, yeah. that wristband gets you into a into the club. Yeah. Whereas if you don't, uh, then actually, mm, no, we're gonna have to assess you a bit more. Yeah. Plus, uh, if you're a father, you probably have the the social connections anyway, um, through your children. Yeah, that social and that emotional. Yeah. Connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd say is uh, I've I've trained a lot of teenagers in my time and probably uh, we all have had trainees and that was seen as legitimate mm. because you were passing on a skill you were in a workplace but in a way it's still child care yeah. depending on the uh, the age of it. in fact where I used to work because uh, I used to be a photographer then people you say oh, will you take train my boy or my girl up because uh, they're really interested in photography Mm. And we'd have them for a week or something like that. But really, it was a week's free childcare, <laughs> in effect. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I think the other thing is, if there is a man who's a, uh, a nursery nurse or something like that, and he gets into the news, then it's celebrated. But it's celebrated because it uh, goes against the grain. It's an oddity. 
yeah. And it's sort of validated because yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's also saying, oh, it's great, it's great, but also saying, isn't it a bit, it is going against the norm. You know how weird, how, how, what an impact this has, this got, it's absolutely bang on, Rob. I, I took, um, I took the Littlands to the park, um, and, and I know this is probably going, uh, probably, I'm going away for the subject, but uh, both Henry's kids, they're English kids, they're white kids, and I'm pushing a little one-year-old in a pram and I've got the other one in my hand and I'm taking them over to the pub. And all I'm thinking in my head is, what are people going to think looking at me with these two little kids? And that's an horrible thing to think and it's an horrible thing to say. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, they're, they're going to they're know that these ain't Miss Bugs. So what am I doing with them? And that's an mm. horrible thing to think, but you can't help it. It stays in your brain. It really does. Mm. What is people's perception going to be of me with these two little spugs? Yeah. And that I find really, that's a difficult one. I don't, don't like it. I, what I notice on our little street here is when a, a kid is having a party, you can see the kids going to the party and the parents trailing behind. Yeah. And because we don't have kids, you're not invited, you're not included. Yeah. So well, it, is I, a, it is a club. Michael, what do you think? I'm trying to be diplomatic here because I don't know if you guys have, have been to Australia, but uh, even though I'm, 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 I'm English by birth, I've been uh, socialised in Australia and we, we tend to have a more forthright and um, we don't beat about the bush when we talk about things. Yeah, and, and so, that's how it should be. What, what I can't help and pisses me off is that there is this, you know, and on, we, we've skirted around it here, but we guys are, t you know, are branded a, you know, a, a sexual predator or a, or a, or a pedo without any, without evidence. And look, I understand why, because, you know, the majority of people like that are guys, but it's unfortunate that as a childless man, it, you know, that's the perception. So you, Rod, you talked about, you know, you felt uncomfortable mm. because you're taking these kids to the park because society is embedded in you that there's there, you know, that as, how does Robin put it? He puts it as, um, uh, we are a threat and that is so wrong. Yeah, yeah. So wrong. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, it's, I must admit that if, if I've never been asked to look after kids and well, except my sisters, my, my niece and nephew, and um, usually that's, you know, let's jump in front of the PlayStation, Harry, and let's have a, you know, let's play this game. But, um, um, but apart from that, I've never been asked, you know, and I would actually feel uncomfortable. So I'm with you, Rod, when you talk about, you know, taking these kids to the park, I would feel uncomfortable because what are people thinking? Yeah. Even though, we have the purest of intentions in our head. Mm, mm. What are people thinking? Yeah. No. And it's weird, Michael, because as I said to Bernice, this is the first time since I split with my ex Jane that I've had uh, a look after two kids like that, especially such a young age. One is one and one's seven. And I actually had to say to Emily in the end, look, if I go to the park with them, because she's seven, um, and I'm saying as delicately as I could put it, if she needs to go to the loo, she needs a bit of support. And I thought, and I don't know what you think about these ladies, what, how do I go into a loo with my mate's little daughter who's seven years old to help support her 
right? With a bloke that this whole a whole bunch of people being around and me having to take her to the loo. And it freaked me out. And I said to him, look, I don't know how I'm going to be able to deal with that, mate. And he said, no, I totally understand because they're legends. They're lovely. They're great mates of mine. But it, Michael's right. That, I don't know what that's about. And I can't quite figure it out either. But it did make me feel extremely uncomfortable. It weren't a problem to me because I love these kids. They're gorgeous. But I, my perception was, this is a really unusual one that's happened in the last week. Mike was absolutely right. I just felt, what am I going to do? what should be just quite an easy thing became something really screwed up in the head. It was a real weird thing. And and that, sorry, that was uh, a friend of mine uh, spoke about this. Her father was uh, coming to see her for Sunday lunch or something and walked through the park and he was a bit late and she went, well, where are you? He said, oh, I stopped to have a game of football with some kids. And she went, oh, you can't be doing that. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, you can't be just stopping that. You're, you're and be, you probably uh, weirdly because the, the ladies are there. Do you think, lad, let me ask you this, and let me ask you girls, do you think it would it'd make a difference and the perception would be different if it, it was me as a woman taking those kids to the park? Yeah, emphatically, yes. Because yeah. we, I mean, we're childless, but we're not seen as a threat. We're seen as yeah. the crazy cat lady or the career woman or... Yeah, I'm not very often asked to babysit because, uh, well, I don't, I don't offer, frankly, because I find it awkward. Yeah. It, in a different way, my own, it's my own emotions that come up around being around children. It's not because I'm seen as a threat. Yeah, sure. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, blokes, I'm, I'm blown away. I didn't realise this was a thing. The other thing is, because you're, you're a woman, you're seen as naturally yeah. okay with children it's assumed you're a woman therefore yeah naturally okay with children I'll, and I'll pause you there robin no <laughs> well no uh, no well, no i'm not natural i'm not natural around children never have been no, but no, it is no. it, I, I accept that it is presumed that i am until yeah. you see me around kids you think bloody hell she's awkward so yeah you know i'm seen as being natural around children i think i've always been sort of given kids to look at it's a family party then i'll I perhaps I tend to overemphasize that because of my losses that um, if there's a party and there's like cake to distribute I corral all the kids together and I get them to help me and do stuff but I'm, I often feel am I doing this too deliberately but I'm trusted with them mm. it's different um, but I do sometimes think that I, I have thought that with on the rare occasion I've had younger children or a child's been put into my arms can you take this child to the loo mm. i think but I, I i don't naturally know what to do because i don't have that experience of my own children if i was a mum i'd know what to do more because yeah. they're kind of you know maybe a, you know friends kids or a, or, a, or a relative or someone like that then I, I i still don't know what to do because i've not had that experience that that mothers have which also makes me feel yeah i don't want to admit that i don't want to say that to people but actually it's true but it's a different reason it's not the same reason that that you have just spoken about it's more an, an aptitude test mm. um whereas for you guys it's not necessarily aptitude so much as it's other people's perception very much it is for me um mm. But I think you're right as well, Bernie. At one point, I was I was saying I had to go and change Raf's nappy, 
and I felt and he, the, the nappy change is upstairs and we were downstairs and Una's downstairs and I'm like, right, do I leave on her own down here while I go and tell Russ nap me or do I take her with me? And I said, what do you want to do? She said, I want to say downstairs. I said, you ain't, you're coming upstairs with me. And she said, why have I got to come and watch you change his nappy? I said, because I need to keep an eye on you. Didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I thought, whatever's happening, you are staying with me. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one teaches you that stuff, does, do they? And no. I, as long yeah. as I know she's all right, you stay with me. So I just stuck to her like Spider-Man on blue paper. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man on blue paper. I was going to say Spider-Man and crack and then realised we're live. So, Michael, sorry, do it. <laughs> so, what, I, what I want to know, Rod, is did, did you heave when you changed the nappy? Oh, God, it was disgusting. <laughs> I think he'd done it on purpose as well. I think he went out for a room the night before because he knew I was coming round and he was giggling like that. <laughs> I, I can't even pick up another dog's poo. Oh. Yeah. I can just about do it now because I, I believe in kind of like I, I should do these things otherwise Will will be banned. But even that's just like, yeah, my, my own dog's poo fine. Other dog's poo, nah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't do, no, I don't do the three S's. Sick, shit or snot. So no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> that's like a strap line there. You've got to use that. I love that. <laughs> I always say it. People say, can you look after my kids? I don't do the three S's, I'm afraid. That's <laughs> That's a bitcom. Honestly, yeah. I, I didn't know all about this perception. Isn't it strange? I hadn't picked up on this perception. But I'm wondering what you think about the fact that when um, my husband and I were sort of going through all our stuff and we weren't sure who was responsible, um, it, <clears throat> the support from his friends was a little bit odd. And I just wonder what you guys think, because we had a conversation in a pub and they went, oh, and they started laughing. They said, oh, you might be a Jaffa. And I was just like, no, really? Really? What do you make of that? Is that a typical thing a bloke does? Is that a defence mechanism? What is that? After you, lads. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it is a defence mechanism. Um, and part of it is because how we're socialised is not to talk about what we're feeling. Mm. In fact, we're socialised to be disassociated as men from our feelings. And so when another man says uh well we socialize also to be sort of 100 percent virile in all fields so biologically socially economically relationally we're object directed and also fulfilled by status to be the the alpha in all of them so when somebody comes along and says actually i'm not like that in this particular way we've got no uh, narratives to go to on it because if we start revealing ourselves that's a big block a social no-no so it's much easier to bat it away uh, and although it's said in a, a joking way it's it's really very hurtful but it's also acknowledged it's sort of saying you're lesser mm. um, Mm. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd go as far as to say that um, that when you when you get a, a group of blokes around, the the competition is who's the alpha, who's the who's the who's the top dog here, and so you know you're you're reluctant to to let something like that out because 
well, now someone's got something against you. You know, now now you you can't be you can't be the alpha because you know, like someone's going to say, "Oh, he might be a jaffa." So all of a sudden, now you're taking second fiddle. Yeah, and so yeah, it's um that's the way I would look at it. Is that um you'd be you'd be reluctant to let that out and you know if you if um if your husband sarah did put you know did say that i mean good on him i mean you know that shows some great personal fortitude but it's it's not something that that we would usually do oh, mm. so yeah. you, oh sorry no go on rod you're gonna say something um no i mean hats off to your old man first of all um i i think yeah going back to combination Mike and Rob said, um, mine was, like, when I did my film, which is almost 10 years ago, when I did my film, I loved, so I'm an artist. Um, <laughs> I, said, I know, I said to Larry, I said to Larry, I said to Larry, I was like, look now, no, um, I wanted to give me a back um, No, uh, right. oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> No, so when I did my film, uh, I mean, actually, uh, that's one of the lines I stuck in. Um, uh, one of the lads uh, said um, uh, about the flower, you're a bit like this seedless. So I was going to stick Jaffa in, but um, really all those kind of points that, because um, I wanted it to be funny, I love everything funny, but in reality, a lot of those comments in my film were comments that I heard. Mm. And I think going back to the, what the lads said, um, after my journey of the whole IVF stuff, it really wasn't about me that I wanted to do about. I really wanted to do just something that uh, I've talked to Robert about this, just having a little platform, creating a platform for men. Because my feeling after all of it was the amount of men out there, uh, going back to what Mark said about the whole macho culture thing as well, that, that are probably desperate to talk about this stuff, but there's no platform for it. And they, even if there was a platform for it, they really struggled uh, to... to to deliver that message because men don't want to hear it. And um, there's never been that narrative for blokes to have a go. Exactly going back to what your point was, Sal, about men to have a go. Look, this is something I'd, I'd like to talk about because it's a struggle for me. Um, and weirdly, 10 years later, when I did the festival, the Barbican, you, it's, still, it's still happening. My talk on that was about men being able to talk because, um, there isn't a platform for men to deal with that kind of stuff. It's like what Michael said, you've just got to deal with this bullshit. You've got to hear the horrible comments, you've just got to try and get through it. There's no closure on it. And I'm hoping one day there's going to be more of a platform where men can actually say, you know, I'm pissed off about this, right? Um, and I should be able to say what I want without feeling guilt or shamed or any less of a fella. Um, and I hope that evolves. I hope that evolves, because I don't think that's going to change that much. At the moment, I think there's still something that men don't want to talk about or challenge, unless you're lads like us in the moment mm. um, that actually deal with it. Other men don't get it because they don't hear it and no one wants to talk about it. So, this is beautiful what you're doing now, guys. I think this is blinding. I yeah. think, sorry, also uh, that in a group situation it's different, and in that group, I, I would expect that afterwards one or two of the members of that group would come up and say well i've had a similar experience or how good it was um that you you actually said it but they wouldn't do it in the group it'd be no. afterwards and it might not be directly afterwards but a few days or even at another but very much on a one-to-one -one 
Yeah, and you know, weirdly, Rob, is when, like, sorry I keep banging on, but when I did that, when I wrote that film <laughs> 10 years ago... Did you no, do a film, Rod? No, 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 no. Did I mention that? No. <laughs> you kept like, it quiet, I was like a twat, do you know what I mean? <laughs> what I'm saying. When As I, if you could. No, I don't, do you know what I mean? It, it does look a bit, like no, I'll be emotional. When I did the film... I wanted people to hear it, and no one heard it. And then when I did the play last year, I did a play, by the way, last year. <laughs> oh, God, oh, Robbie, why'd you have to mention it? But everyone... I well, did. I saw it. It was beautiful. Oh, you came and saw it, didn't you? I did, yeah. 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 It was fantastic. Oh, no. shall, I play, shall I play Graham Norton? Yeah, you do that. I'm feeling it now. I'm feeling it now. I'm feeling it now. Right, yeah, yeah, even now I'm feeling it. I'm glad you're feeling it. <laughs> Can we keep it back to this, though? I mean, you felt it last week when I saw you in person, but let's not go there. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> and Rob, by the way, listen, I will give you that 50 for the comment, so nice job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, no, but going back to your points as well, because uh, when I did the play last year, because it was just getting older, it's all about getting older. And going back to Robbie's point, it's a really fine point. Is um, look, he's throwing up now. <laughs> I'm trying not to cough on Mike. All right, thanks a lot, mate. And um, and what was lovely is uh, I've got a tweet, and it took me ages to work out tweet because I'm knackered on social media. And listen, I have problems just getting out of a beanbag, so doing social media is bad for me. But a geezer out nowhere just tweeted me. Um, it's been a long time since I've had a tweet, do you know what I mean? But anyway, no, no I'm, I'm messing about now. Um, <laughs> and he just, he just, this geezer, I don't know, he just out of nowhere, he said, look, I didn't see your play, but I heard about it, so I watched your film. And it was, it was a really empowering thing for me, because I'm just an ordinary bloke, that's just like all of us just trying to do something. And he said, um, it's the first time I've seen something about a bloke like me. And he said, thank you. And I just thought, that means everything to me, you know, because I don't know what this bloke's going, I don't know him, he could have been suffering for years, but he just said, I'm glad I'm not alone. And I thought, that's beautiful. That does it for me, guys, you know what I mean? That it just, yeah. like, one thing, yeah. you know, and I'm nothing, I'm just a bloke, but that meant a lot to me that he didn't feel yeah. like he was on his own. No, I, to I, I totally understand, you know, um, we'll talk about it a bit later, but uh, yeah, the the, the correspondence I've got from a, a guy that we'll call John um, is it just blew me away. Yes. You know, just absolutely blew me away to think that, that, um, you know, we've reached another bloke. Yeah. That's because, you know, this, this, this whole child was not by choice thing is extremely isolating for us, you know, because, uh, and, and I'll use my, my situation you know we've been vicky and i've been together a long time you know we've you know and you know nothing's ever easy but you know we tried to have kids done the ivf thing and everything else but every every point through that journey i felt the expectation that i had to keep it together it was my job to be that rock so it you know because you know i can't fix it so i've got to be something and but what it does is it really it, it isolates you because you've got to keep it all together you've got to keep it all inside so that 
you know, because you can't both fall to pieces because it will just be a complete bloody mess. And yeah, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it just makes it so much more, you know, meaningful when another guy reaches out and says, you know, thank you. You know, I don't feel alone because we do that to ourselves mm. in some respects, you know. Do you find that keeping it together was quite, it caused problems between you and your wife, if you don't mind me asking, or in fact to any of you, in, did you feel like you were trying to keep it together? From my point of view, I found it was, it made us more isolated from each other because I was kind of going through all this stuff and my husband was kind of, kind of breezing through life. I mean, for me, children was fundamental. For him, it would have been a bonus. I had always gone into it. We knew that. Um, but because I, I, I can remember a weird thing when we had the very last scan that we had, and we found out that we we weren't. We I was pregnant, and then it the it hadn't gone to term, um, and I was going to miscarry. And I can remember him crunching on a boiled sweet. And he, how can you eat? And I can remember it. And it wasn't a measure of him being anything other than, he's just fantastic. He's, he's an absolute rock. But it was the thing I remember the most from that particular thing. Not the conversation that we had about the fact that, you know, the, the scan. That came later. But it was the fact that, God, you really are that, you're holding it together in that way that I simply can't. I could barely walk out of the room. My legs had gone from under me. And I'm wondering how that kind of all equates. I've gone off on a, I've, I've digressed somewhat, sorry. <laughs> I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> well, I, I can, I, I'll, I'll speak for that. Because um, Vicky and I have talked about this a lot. Mm. Um, and um, it, it, she always felt that, that I, um, it did make, it didn't make a difference to me because I was this staunch, you know, person she could well the way that i perceived it that she could rely on but the way that she perceived it was well doesn't doesn't this mean anything to you i've just miscarried and you know we're not going to have that child and just well aren't you affected by this mm. now, because i wasn't crying but on the inside of course i'm just trying i'm just you know my my whole mental energy is just trying to keep it together because that's what I felt needed to happen. I need to keep this together so that, that we can, we can move on from this. And, um, a way I can, and one of the ways I can, uh, a little anecdote about this, I wrote about it in the blog where, um, it's about curtains. And, um, if, if, if Vicky was having a bad day, the curtains will be closed. I'll be coming home from work about 3.30, 4 o'clock and the curtains will be closed. And I would drive by the house knowing, okay, what have I got, what have I got to face today? And I'd drive around the block a couple of times to, to get myself together and to find the personal strength to then pull up in the driveway and walk through the front door to deal with, what was there and um so i yes it does isolate you between the two of you in in that respect um and it's only now at 52 that um i think i'm able to let that go 
Um, there are other things in my life that have probably accelerated that. But um, yeah, Vicky's now looking at me going, you know, it's really nice to see you letting go. You know, now I, even though she knew I cared, she's now seeing it, if that makes sense. It does. And thank you, Michael, for your honest answer. Yeah. I think that is, that's, I remember the curtains. I remember reading that and thinking that that meant so much. Um, that means an awful lot. Thank you. So needless to say, we don't have curtains anymore. We got rid of them. <laughs> it's we've like got, we've, chairs. I have, I have a story about chairs. We'll do that another got, time. But the chairs we've got plan, are gone. We've got some really nice white plantation shutters now. Lovely. I just want to, can I say something as well? Just at soft to you both, uh, Berenice, Michael, um, very quickly, because I, I won't waffle on, because I do waffle, but I did a whole half an hour speech about literally this question when I did the festival. Um, mm. And very quickly, when I went into this, and my, my background being a working class boy, is we were kind of brought up with three values when we were kids. We were taught three values. They weren't even values. They were more just like... I identities and the, the three things were one men don't talk two men can fight um especially where i was from and three is that you look after your woman that's how it was your own life so i couldn't talk when we did the first one first ivf um and that was already a struggle but then it failed um and then i realized i couldn't fight anymore because it's science it's ivf there's nothing you can do about it and i suddenly thought right one's down two's down and then thirdly you know, when we went through another journey we ended up calling it a day um, and that weren't the only reason why we split but then I realised my third one had gone which is I can't look after my me, me wife anymore and that predominantly is why I did what I did in the end because going back to what Michael said nobody really asked you, uh, you how you feel as a bloke and I'd gone into that not talking and then I couldn't be able to do that couldn't fight and then I couldn't look after my girl anymore so you're devastated even that because I would have I would have just happily gone without kids and looked after her because that was my modus operandi, I just want to look after a woman. And as Michael said, you don't put yourself first as a bloke. I mean, depending on who you are. So by the time of that, the end of that journey had come, I didn't know what to do, which is why I wrote the film, because I just didn't know what to do. All those feelings that you have, you're stuck. There's no closure. You've got nowhere to go. What do you do about it? And I thought, well, onwards and upwards, Rodders, well, try and do something. Um, and I'm exactly the same age as you now, Michael. And it's... Um, the journey just takes you somewhere else. But it doesn't really give you closure. It's how you deal with it. It's just how you mm -hmm. deal with all that. Um, but the feelings don't change. I hated myself, mate. Absolutely hate myself. You know, I felt I was to blame to take this woman down the road with me. I don't feel that no more. But that's the reality of your face as a bloke. We're going to take the conversation in a different direction now. We asked our audience if they had anything they would like to raise with us on this episode. And a man reached out to me with his story, and it highlights the diversity of how we can get to this place in life and the effects it has on us. Now, we haven't used his real name, and here are our thoughts. A guy called John, um, and that's a pseudonym, got in contact um, directly with Michael on his email and gave us a little bit of background to his story. And a lot of the conversation that he has is around... His work, he works um, in engineering, I believe. And Michael, you can correct me if I'm wrong because I am quickly skimming through this and I know you've had much more of a conversation with him. But he talks an awful lot in his emails about the relationship that he has with his wife 
and I believe that his wife has um, children by another relationship. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Lovely. Okay. And that they have been or were trying to conceive and that she had a miscarriage. That they've also been to the National Memorial for the Unborn, which I think they have found um, a sense of peace in that. We do have one in this country ah. as well. Um, but one of the quotes that he I found quite moving in this is that sometimes it's hard knowing the person you're married to doesn't understand how you feel. She couldn't. She says she understands but really can't feel it. There's that difference, I think, there that that comes across in the emails about that he is childless, his wife is not. Yeah, so she has she has two children who are when they met, they were um, uh, they were they were able to look after themselves. So when when they got together, um, the children were part of their you know relationship within the house, um, and he's always felt isolated from those those children because the children never see him as their father. And um, he tells of when he goes to parties, and you know his his wife's daughter introduces him. Oh, that's John, not my mum's husband or you know my stepfather. That's John. So that's a gauge of how he's how he feels within this this family. So what I did to him was I said, look, you know. Um, my advice would be to obviously get us some third party support, which he has done, but also join um, some groups on Facebook where you can, you can start to chat with people similar to you. I mean, he can obviously, he obviously talks to me, but it'll be good to, to get a, a more varied response and, and varied support. So I, I encouraged him to join a, a group on Facebook, um, which he did. So he's, he's, um, he's in his sixties and um, hadn't even had a Facebook account, but I, I brought him over to the dark side, and um, and he was really enjoying that. He was really feeling that he wasn't alone. He was um, engaging in the group, putting posts up, and getting feedback from those people in that group, and it was really actually quite a highlight for him um, to be part of that. But now I'd like to read you something, and and John John knows that I'm going to read this. I have his permission to read this, um, and he will be listening to the to the episode, and he would like to come onto the show um, at some time. And I've said by all means. But so he wrote this. You may have noticed I've been absent from the group. It's because I was having some interference from my wife. She initially encouraged me to join the group. She would get upset when I was on the group site. She said she felt left out and not part of it. I told her she can be involved if she wants, and I have even read her a couple of posts. But I also told her she wouldn't be able to relate to what the people are saying. I said to her in a very calm and collective voice, you have what I want. You have children. You have grandchildren. Yes, I have stepkids and step-grandchildren, but no blood relation. 
don't you see that? Why can't you have let me have this? So I thought that the best thing for our marriage was to leave the group. It wasn't something I wanted to do, believe me, because now I have no one to talk to. The next day, she told me to go back to the group, that it wouldn't bother her. And I said to her, do you think I'm crazy? I go back and you get upset again? No way. No, I won't. Because I don't believe her. I've also deleted my Facebook account. Please write to me anytime you like. I'm still grateful that I have found Vicky and your blog. And please thank her for me. Thanks for everything, Michael. And, um, and thank the leader of the group that he was part of. Everyone in the group has been wonderful. And I thank God that, that it was there. You can feel that they really want to help each other. It was a good feeling to know that there were people out there who really understood. Please share this and anyone else you think should know. Just please leave out my email address, of course. Um, regards, John. And my heart went out for this guy to think that, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your opinions of that. I kind of want to flag up something that came to my mind. I know that the question probably around that isn't necessarily directed at, at me, but what I will say is that my husband is a, a technical um, in, I'm not going to say the word imbecile. <laughs> That's the wrong word. But he doesn't <laughs> like technology. He can strip a motorbike down with his eyes shut um, and do heaps of other things. But he's not interested in Facebook, social media, anything like that. And I think we find support in different places. I think it's very hard to comment on that relationship that his wife and he have because I don't have stepchildren but I also know that there is a difference between how my husband feels about childlessness and how I do which we spoke about a little earlier in the episode he doesn't have that he, he engages with children he loves his nieces and nephews and happily goes to weddings and parties it's fine he doesn't have that problem and has a very different experience with his friends as well. It's a very different thing to being called a, a, a There's not that conversation. But I think that when you have, you find support, you find support in lots of different places. And you have to have that, or try to have, I think, that respect for each other that you may have a different way of dealing with it. Some people think as individuals, we will talk. Some of us will... Um, find it easier online and um, you just can get something out online and you can write it down as again we've spoken about in our first um, episodes that we've done for the podcast so I think there's a de degree of kind of respect in terms of between people what they find the best way to deal with those problems and to find that support mm. and perhaps that's maybe a, an area that they need to explore together I think it's a very, it's a huge shame. I, I have seen the posts from, from John and they were 
very lovely, very moving. And I think I learned a lot from that. And I think that there's an awful lot to be said for sharing and being part of a social media group. It's an odd thing. I don't think everyone gets social media. Or why would you want to do that? Or why do you want to talk to complete strangers? But actually through doing that, you meet good friends. I wouldn't have met any of you had it not have been through social media. No, I agree. Actually, I found his emails quite heartbreaking. Mm. He's not included in the family. Uh, uh, well, that's his perception, and that's the way he feels he's been treated. And then he's found a family of sorts that understand him. And now, unfortunately, he feels that he can't he can't contribute to that anymore because obviously his wife is very important to him. Yeah. I just think I I found the whole thing very difficult to read, if I'm honest. I really feel for John to be an outsider but in an inside in an insider situation you're an insider in quite a lot of the things but you're also an outsider at the same time uh the, the group you're in with have a shared genetic experience that's socialized as well and you're not included in that that's really um painful as he's mm -hmm. finding and certainly I've spoken to a few men in similar situations and they've, they've noticed the difference in uh, connectivity between uh, people with uh, shared uh, genetic uh, experience. And it's something that definitely I think he and his, his wife and his partner should see somebody about that particular aspect in their relationship to work on and if he can see his way to being in back in the group because he to join with people with a shared experience uh it sounds really really the way for him to go from my point of view yeah um yeah, I'm feeling for John. Um, I think Beverly said it's very difficult stuff like this because, I mean, you, know, you don't want to, uh, out of respect, you don't want to offer up an opinion. I certainly hope he rejoins the group because it sounds like it did him a lot of good, a lot of power of good. Um, and I hope he rejoins it. I think you need something when, when you feel that isolated, when you're on your own. Legacy, um, well, I think that's why I'm double feeling for him because I think part of what drives me to do what I've done, whether, you know, whether it's the film, whether it's the play, you know, the Radio 4 thing, the barbecue and all that kind of stuff, it does give your life a bit of meaning out of what was not a nice journey. Um, and I feel for John because, um, because I, I kind of know what it's like to be there because I don't have family around me at all, it's me, I'm on my own. Um, there's not even extended family around me. I've always been on me, uh, it's gonna sound a bit naff, um, but there is, part of what helps me get over uh, all the stuff that I've been through is because there's a lot of other stuff that has happened in my life that um, you just deal with, you know, whether it's mental health or death or whatever it has been. Um, I don't know, I've always been driven to just do something. As like Robin just said, to have a bit of meaning, to do something that creates something for you. 
that makes you feel good about yourself, that you're doing something, that gives you some kind of voice, some kind of meaning in life. And this is where we're going to have to leave Robin and Rod. Now, don't forget that we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can get all the show notes from our website, www.thefullstoppod.com. We'd also appreciate, if you're enjoying the podcast, considering rating us. This will help us get up the charts and be found by more of our community. Now, up next, Sarah and I had the chance to speak to another really nice guy, Andy Harrod. Andy is a writer and a therapist, currently in the midst of his PhD, and one of his blog posts was seen by the girls and it really touched them. So much so that they said, we must have him on the men's show. And I'm glad they did because he is, as we say in Australia, a top bloke. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, good to see you, Andy. I really <laughs> you appreciate too. your time. That's okay. So I, I guess I should apologise to the listeners for my voice. <laughs> uh, rest assured, it is me, Sarah. And I've not suddenly uh, dropped a few octaves. Um, that last night, so I need to explain the voice. <laughs> so, uh, become an honorary man with the voice. So I'm just looking up your blog post, actually, Andy. Sorry if I'm a bit distracted, but I wanted to talk about that if okay. with you. That's okay. Because obviously, um, That's... listeners aren't necessarily going to know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, you're a man. That's voice. true. But so. How about a little bit about yourself, if that's all right to start with? If you can tell us a bit about yourself, if you don't mind. A bit about myself. It's probably one of the worst questions to be asked, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> so, yeah. I'm just trying to think where to begin with this. I suppose to find myself at 39 um, without children, which I think was an assumption I'd have a family. So I suppose a little bit about myself is I'm married. Um, we celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm currently doing a PhD, which some people are joking is a bit of a midlife crisis, um, which is looking at how nature uh, influences well-being over, long over the long term. I'm also a therapist and work with a charity who we work with clients who have been sexually abused or raped. Um, outside of that, sort of, I run, um, enjoy the cricket. Um, hopefully, the ashes will go well for us, and that will provide a sort of much-needed distraction. Um, yeah, into music, sort of into nature, being outdoors. I've got a pair of cats, which kept me awake last night, <laughs> so a little tired myself. Good old yeah. Cats. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Certainly. Sorry. I know exactly how I feel. They're they're all about them, aren't they, cats? <laughs> They are. You sort of, yeah. Life is on their terms. If they want cuddles, you've got to sit still and cuddle them. If they don't, then that's it. They just walk off. <laughs> Give you a quick and last swipe. night. One of them just wanted to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I've had a few scratches. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the cats have been good for us. They sort of uh, we adopted them when our house felt too silent, and this was before the first IVF. And it's, yeah, they've been a bit of a lifesaver, really. A bit of meaning, a bit of purpose, a lot of joy, a lot of fun and laughter. Some expense. One of them's, they're both black, but one seems to be the most unluckiest cat in the world. She, she injured a leg and she had to be in a cage for three months. She then had breast cancer and was back in the cage for a few more months. But she's doing well now. She's happily 
having cuddles downstairs with my wife. But, um, yeah, the, it's been the ups and downs with them as well. But mm. yeah, wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I think that's the thing with animals, isn't it? They do fill a void sometimes. They do, yeah. It's not quite the same, but they certainly um, add flavour to life and sort of, yeah, there's, there's certainly something to love and to connect with and to be attached to and care for. And in a sense, how we are with our cats would, is the same we would have been with our children where we'll do everything possible for them, which is, I think, in how we've looked after Charlie, the one who's been injured and had cancer, that's been clear. There's, there's months we'd have spent on the kitchen floor cuddling her because so, all she could do is be in a cage and have a very small room. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really yeah. meaningful, really. And then you get a lot back from them just from sort of being there with you. It's a nice present. Yes, yeah. still on their terms, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess, um, I suppose yeah, they, really, good. if I explain to the listeners how it was that we, well, I suppose how we came to talk, because we kind of, we've sort of, something came up on my feed at Twitter, wasn't it? You posted a blog post, mm. and I can't even remember how it came to be that I saw it, but we had a conversation didn't we on twitter and i said I'll, I'll, yeah. do you mind if i share your blog post mm. um and you was it was called unbecoming uh well it's brackets unbecoming an imposter and it was a very um honest account of you um dealing with your childlessness and i remember reading it and feeling wow this 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 could be me writing it and i think that's why i wanted to reshare it through after the storm so what what was it that brought around that blog post because it felt like a lot went into it um yeah i think i sort of reached a point where i'd had enough of wearing masks so in april i went to a conference from a phd and it was my first conference i've been to there's just a sense of how much more alive the research could be my phd experience could be and therefore also me i just felt so lost of confidence so full of doubt that what i was doing was worthwhile was in the right direction i was expecting to just be sort of laughed at ripped apart and that wasn't the case i had loads of really good chats about the research and and just chats in general about nature about being a student and it just felt much more full of life and I think I'd been noticing up to that point over the months of doing the PhD because it was very beforehand I was counselling alongside admin and the admin was to pay the mortgage and there I could easily hide but doing the PhD because it's for me it made me realise how much I'd sort of left behind my, my living a, a real alive life. Coming back from that conference I just sort of thought to myself what's going on here? Spoke to my wife and didn't and in a sense, she was the inspiration behind it because she spent more time since the last, the second IVF where it didn't work, three, four years ago now, sort of really working on the grief. She'd gone, she's part of Gateway Women. She's worked through Jodie Day's book, um, The Life Unexpected. She's meet, met up with other childless women. And, and so I've, I'd sort of done bits and pieces on my own, but I was very much more withdrawn from it, the avoiding it. And so after that conference, there's just a sense of, no, I need to meet this head on. And so, yeah, I just spent a bit of time sort of more focused on the grief work. So I went through Jodie Day's book myself. Um, I looked at other books around sort of, there's one about the courage to be disliked. I didn't agree with all of it, but there was this sense of, again, living back in the moment, just being more true to yourself, not comparing yourself to others. That's 
where a lot of the sort of hurts come from. Yeah, and from and also I had a chance to do some art. So that's some I had like a pin board I picked up about four years ago. And I was like, and we'd found some leaves at the time that had been really um decayed and it was almost all that was left was the threadbare veins of it. And I had just this idea of doing a heart like that, because that's how it sort of felt to me like I'd just cracked and splintered and it was really bruised. And so yeah, I spent time doing that. And then from that, I just sort of wanted to sort of come out, if you like. And that is what it sort of felt like. So I put the post, I suppose, is probably years worth of sinking. And then those couple of months of focus work on it, it just led to sort of pouring it out, just saying enough's enough of sort of being fake to myself, let alone to other people. And I think part of me for my healing is sort of, giving voice to the experience but also making that voice more public so it's not just about being true to myself within my friends my family but also to saying look us childless men we do exist we're out here and so yeah the posters accumulation of that and i've been surprised by the response so there's chats with yourself and others on twitter but also with like colleagues at work and it's sort of like it opened up conversations I didn't expect really. So yeah, so it's, yeah, it's been good. It's, it's strange that you say coming out because that's kind of I've used that vernacular myself and been told off for it by the people in the mm. LGBTQ community. Is that that's yeah. ours? But it does. It's um, it does feel as though you are, if you like, coming out um, of a. a, a a closet isn't it really like the shame and the embarrassment it's kind yeah, of I always think of it as being comparable even though I can't relate to being um gay or, or bi or queer or mm. all the other uh, terminology but it does feel as though you are having you, you feel very exposed yeah I'd say that was the case really and it was I think the fear of being exposed and maybe how others may respond to it kept me in a sense, locked away. So, yeah, I I actively withdrew out of sort of fear of being hurt, but also with friends and family, sort of brothers having children, there was a sort of drifting because we weren't on the same page any longer. And in the real deep grief, just being near sort of my brother's kids, my nieces or friends' children, it was just too much and so I think in a sense the coming out is just sort of it's been okay with my story and in a sense the shame sort of maybe looked after me at the worst time so I won't hurt more but in another way it was just keeping me too locked up so it was a yeah so I suppose the post is just saying enough's enough it's still gonna hurt I'm still on the roller coaster it's it's still sort of early days and finding my voice finding the community and finding time for that as well but it feels a different place to, to back in april those that sort of focused work does seem to have helped a lot yeah it's interesting because i remember you saying michael uh about how uh vicky your other half <clears throat> grieved um but you sort of came to it a bit later it sounds very similar what do you make of that michael i must admit i'm i'm, I'm I'm listening to Andy and I, I'm, I, I am getting a bit sort of, and I think I've mentioned about this before, I'm getting a bit closed up now because I'm just listening 
And um, so I find it hard to, 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 um, yeah, I'm, I'm just find it a bit tough. Mm-hmm. But I'm okay. Don't worry. That's part of the journey is being able to recognise that and, you know, and be be honest with yourself. For me, it was, you know, as I said to with Rod and Robin, it was about, you know, you're, you're holding it all together because, you know, you feel like you've got to. You can't let your world go to pot, if you will. Um, and and then eventually, like Andy, there comes a point where you just can't do that anymore. You know, you, you have you realise that you've you've got to let it out. You've got to get it. You know, you've got to purge it. Kudos to you, Andy, for being able to do that. Not an easy thing. I totally understand. But on a different note, Berenice has just sent a message in and said, hello, Andy. So if we don't say hello to you on her behalf, we'll be in trouble. So, so Andy, <laughs> Andy, um, Andy you're, mm. what was your early life like? Where were you? Where, where were you? What, what was life for you like as a boy? You know, where did you grow up? There is a point to this. So, okay. Um, I grew up in Norfolk. So um, I'm now in Lancaster, so I've clearly moved north. <laughs> An interesting question, really. Um, it was enough, which probably says a lot more than, than those two words sort of can, in a way. Um, so I grew up with my brother, who's a twin, and there was just the two of us. My parents had us around 20, they were 29. And later on, we found that they had trouble conceiving. Um, but yeah, my childhood was sort of very boyish in a way. Like, played football regularly, went to Beavers Cub Scouts, but also went to like a Catholic school and to a Catholic church, which wasn't for me and took a long time to sort of leave behind. But there was a sense of, in terms of that growing up, we were outdoors a lot, played football a lot. Just thinking about it, it seemed really male. And there was a sense of, you're a boy, you don't show feelings, you don't cry. And with, and with the church thing, the Catholic approach, it felt more Jesus, God is more important. So what, who you are is secondary. So it was all about putting others first. If you thought about yourself, that wasn't as good. And in a sense, my parents were, were like that in a sense of, they did a lot for other people possibly sometimes I feel like neglected themselves and maybe I took on those messages where which I think comes out in the blog post in the sense of who I am matters less than who other people are and yeah I think also when I look at my family the messages I got as a boy was my dad was the one who well both parents worked but my dad was in a sense his role was supporting us financially and it's sort of like felt like that's what I had to do because I remember when we first started trying I was like we'd got married and I said oh can we just wait a few more months to sort out the money and it was like thinking this we had all the time in the world which we didn't and I think it seemed like the childhood was like everyone else's I had friends and dead brothers and sisters everyone seemed to have the 2.4 family and it just seemed to work is that sort of what you're after Michael yeah yeah uh, the the way Rod puts it, and I'm going to try very hard to muck up this Cockney accent. But, <laughs> careful now, careful. <laughs> but there were three things when you were growing up. That was you don't show emotion, you look after your woman, and you fight. How'd that go? That was, was that all right? <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so, and it, it was like a light come on for me because it actually, not that I would choose those three things, but, you know, you realize mm. I, 52, I realized, bloody hell, he's right. You know, I was brought up that you, you, you don't show emotion. And even now with mm. my parents, they get quite uncomfortable because I'm a bit, I'm, I'm comfortable with showing my emotions or no, okay. I'm getting more comfortable getting, showing my emotions, mm. <laughs> but they find it extremely, extremely uncomfortable when I do. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then of course there's the, there's the, the fight thing, which is about the way I would look at that is about you're fixing something. You can fix a situation. You can, you mm. can sort it out. Yeah. And then there's always that uh, for fear of, I hope we don't ever have any trolls, but you know, as, as Rod puts it, you look after your woman, don't you? And you're brought up that way. Yeah. And, and it, it, yeah. And then when these things come along, it, it certainly throws you for six. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I was getting at. I was just trying to hmm. try to see, you know, did you, you know, were you socialized as a, as a kid, the same as us and, you know, trying to start that conversation. Yeah. Does I think it does make sense. And certainly, um, don't show emotion. Yeah, look after your woman in that sense of you're the one who's supporting her, you're the breadwinner. That's part of your identity. The fighting, me and my brother fought as brothers do. There wasn't so much of it, but there was certainly a sense of things could be fixed. Or yes. as and also that sense of you go out and you just take the rough with the smooth, if you like, or because we spent a lot of time outdoors, it was just you'd get on with it if you got it. I remember having a broken wrist and still going canoeing. There was no sense of like <laughs> looking after yourself. You just kept, you just kept going. You kept doing these things. Nothing would. It wasn't necessarily the right thing to do looking back, but there was no <laughs> sense of either my dad or my mum or me thinking anything differently. These things have been arranged, so just kept going. And so there is that sense of things will just keep working themselves out, or if you just keep throwing stuff at it be it money or energy, it, it works. And I think that certainly came out for our trying for children through the IVF that, well, if we just keep doing this, the doctor saying the IVF is what we need and we throw some extra money at it as well as what we got through the NHS, then we'll have a kid. And you can't, it doesn't work like that. And, and then afterwards with the grief process, there was certainly this thing on me, not, on my, not through my wife's, she was like saying to me, you need to take time off. You need to grieve. And I was like, I was like, I can't, I need to be the, the one that sort of keeps going. And mm. I couldn't almost show that sort of shame of being off as well. Like having a block of time off from work or from my clients, how would I explain it in counseling? And it's, yeah. So that sense of it, it will fix itself as well. was certainly part of me. And I think that came from that sort of upbringing. So, mm, yeah, yeah I, 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 to, I totally understand that. I, I would, you know, I would frame it a little bit differently in that, that I think, um, you know, brought up quite independent, mm. quite independent. So you had to rely on yourself to sort stuff out, you know. And so when you when you come across okay. a situation 
when you come across a situation like this that you can't fix. You, you know, no matter what you th- resources you throw at it, it ain't going to get any better. Mm. And I've, you know, it, it's, it's really, it's, I found it as a guy really hard to deal with. It was so it was just better locked away at the back and just, you know, all right, let's just move on and get on with it. But of course, as we all know, that's not, that's not the way it should be. So, yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, so when my wife, my wife says to me now, she goes, I'm so glad you're grieving <laughs> because it, it shows you cared. I mean, she knew I cared, <laughs> but you know, it, yeah, I think you understand what I'm going, where I'm I, coming from. Yeah, I do get what you're saying because I think the, the trying to carry on, the locking it away, the avoiding it can show you you're more okay with the situation than you are. That mm. actually it does hurt. It's not what you want. So yeah. yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And but it is I don't know. It's strange, isn't it? Because even as a male therapist and going through all that training and working with clients in very difficult situations. There is still that when it comes to my own stuff or some of it, it's almost like it's untouchable. That it's yeah. the same shame they carry for what's their trauma, and I'm asking them to open up to work through it, and I'm willing to work with them and go there with them. But then to go with myself there, it seems really difficult. And I think there is that message of that of men just you just keep going, stiff up a lip. Or you have a few beers down the pub, you might say a few words to your mates, and then you have a few more beers and you forget about it. And it's all chat and sport. It's it's not feelings. Mm. And the feelings yeah. come out, it's almost like, oh, well, we don't talk about that again. So how did you, um, I guess, it might be a bit personal, but here you are helping others, but you're locking everything away, knowing it's not the right thing to do, but... How did you reconcile with yourself about that? Yes, I think there was moments. I think it was during that process. It was like a roller coaster. To be sometimes where I knew I was doing the exact opposite of what I'd ask a client to do, or if I was the client, I'd expect to be asked to do in a sense. And I just sort of knew that it was at odds with what I'd like to do, but I just kept going. I just kept avoiding it. Kept being busy. But then I'd burn out and I'd end up being ill for a week. And I remember after the second IVF of like saying to my wife, oh, it's over. As in like, when this isn't going to happen. We're not going to have kids. And then a few days later, having this idea, I'm just going to run every day for a month and some writing will come out of it. And that will be my grief journey and process. On about day four, I just came down with a really bad stomach bug and just completely stopped functioning for like a week and then I just kept going again it's like I didn't listen to myself but then there'd be moments where I did start to think well I'm asking this to clients and I'll do some work for me and then I think oh I've done that and keep going it's like almost like I did it in patches but didn't take the learning with me it's almost like I could look at it for so long I could sort of swim with it for a bit and then ask too much but instead of sort of then saying ask too much take a step look at what you've done see how it feels it was almost like that's too much back of the head get rid of it again this is too painful and I think mm. it was only leaving the sort of administration role 
where there was lots of triggers of work with lots of female colleagues who were on and off with pregnancies and babies. That when I started the PhD, when this is for me, I can only let myself down here. That the space opened up in a way, or the realization opened up that I couldn't keep doing this sort of roller coaster of avoiding it for activities like running or just being burnt out and then watching sort of box sets or sports or doing it for a bit but then not sort of linking it up to the rest of my life and that sort of feels like what's happened more recently is that sort of linking it up and I think it was just a sense of my life is going to go missing and, and it feels like it had like we started at sort of 29 now I'm 39 and it's like in those 10 years I feel more tired. I can't do the all-nighters when it comes to writing like I could then when I was counselling training. And it's, and I don't know if that's just an energy thing as age, but I also feel like it's a grief thing, it's a fatigue thing. And I think part of what you're asking, why, how did I some sort of reconcile asking others to do something I couldn't do myself was I had enough of being fatigued, of being burnt out, of being tired of not being able to do things outside like a nine to five. And I think, so maybe it was just a slow process. It certainly wasn't like a light bulb moment. There's a few things I did not going, life doesn't feel that meaningful. I'm always tired. I'm missing out on social things. When things were busy, I withdrew from the things that were doing me good and end up just sitting. So yeah, it's a bit like that. I get it as well, actually. <laughs> I think during the time... So during the time we were trying, it's, it's all a bit of a blur because I think you become so obsessed with just that one thing that you really want that's proven almost, well, very difficult or has come to be impossible to do. I just think I, I have very few memories of the time when I was probably 34 through to 42 when I had my hysterectomy. I got very few memories because my whole life was that. I want children, this is my quest. And when it proves impossible, it's mm. very hard to then try and pick it all up again, isn't it? And work out what the hell you're doing with yourself. So, yeah, I think fatigue is one of the things, I think it's because your brain's chuntering so much mm. over things, isn't it? That it uses up a lot of energy and you just feel knackered. And obviously it's part of grief yeah, and depression. Think, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, a lot of fatigue, it felt bodily in pain, like joint pain. But I think it all came from a head just being so busy, so preoccupied of trying for something that was half working and then not working. Like there's lots of miscarriages. But there's also then the preoccupation of keeping yourself safe from others, sort of mm -hmm. having to sit there hearing baby conversation and trying to put a wall around yourself. And then also just avoiding it. It's it is literally everywhere. And it's and on some days that's okay, and other days if I see a baby in the car sign, I just want to go and smash the window. But it's sort of like, yeah, so I think the fatigue is very mental that comes out physically because I think, as Michael said, there is a sense of just putting it behind. Yeah, it eventually comes out in some way. I'm just, I have got time where I'm listening to it, where I'm on the process and all because. I don't know, this is it, this is our life and our plan B, if you like, and Jody speak is it can be rich, it can be rewarding, it can be fun. Without doing this work, it will just 
forever be clouded over and there's still going to be good and bad days that that's always going to be the case this is part of our lives but yeah without doing that work those lives could be a lot more clouded really mm. yeah i agree totally you have to you have you can't go around it you can't go over it you have to go through it i mm. think was that jody was that a jodyism i just quoted there <laughs> it might be. I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> I'm not sure I can claim that one. Um, but no, you 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 can't. <laughs> you can't not go through it. You have to experience it in order to be able to come out the other side and hopefully have a rich and rewarding life, regardless of the fact that you've not been mm. able to have the family you wanted. But it's it's interesting yeah. what you say about triggers because I am I still very much struggle with triggers. Um, I went to, uh, we were talking about this the other week, weren't we, Michael? I went to a beer festival and I thought, oh, mm -hmm. I'll, be, I'll be safe. I didn't mentally mm. prepare. Usually I sort of, I mentally prepare and I think, right, I'm going to be all right. I know there's going to be kids there. I'm prepared. Yep. But I wasn't prepared for it at a beer festival to have quite so many and quite so many small ones. The small ones are the ones for me that are just like, Ugh. So, uh, yeah, that was really hard. But for me, yeah. I, I guess I don't get angry. I just get really upset. So maybe... Is the anger maybe a male response? I don't know. I'm wondering, yeah, it'd be interesting Michael's take on this, but for me, I think anger and sadness gets really mixed up in terms of emotions. I think for men, and if I look back at my childhood, anger could be released and could be shown, even so it was frowned upon in the sense of parents or other people around boys knew what to do with anger. With a boy who was crying, it was what do we do there's, there's a sense of needing to rescue him or me rather than understand what's happening and so yeah i think it's possible that the more i'm with the grief and processing it and understanding it the more i can allow the sadness to come and feel sad about it but the less the more i avoid it the anger is when it comes out it's sort of like because i'm avoiding it it's suddenly it might be enough seen four or five triggers that day and I'm the fifth one it's like I just want to explode because I'm not registering the sadness of the first four if you like so I think yeah it's a male thing and I wonder if it's also part of that avoidance thing mm. yeah so, how, how do you oh sorry <laughs> sorry I think we're going to ask Michael the same thing here we thing. are aren't we <laughs> <laughs> um yeah look I'm listening and um I Hang on, yeah, I'm I'm off mute. Um, I I I can say that I've I've never been angry. Um, that that's not part of my temperament anyway. So I'm sitting here thinking, because hmm, I know for the grief process, there's got to be an anger. There's going to be an anger portion somewhere. Have I got there yet? Oh, I don't know. Mm. I would like to think I that I'll bypass that one because that's just not part of what I am. Well, what you know, I don't tend to get angry. Mm. Um, but yeah, I can. Um, but it's definitely. I think it's a definitely a male thing. I think it's. It's definitely. You know, it's a frust. It's the build up of frustration when when you you know you know you can't fix this, mm. and that's and I think. I think we, we as guys need to recognise that we, we can't fix everything. As much as we would love to think we could, we can't. 
and we're socialized that way as we spoke about earlier and i think that's a i think that's probably where it comes from is a real frustration you know and and but um i think i've been lucky um in that i've i probably realized early that we you know there's, there's nothing i can do about this there's nothing so you know I, but having said that i totally understand what you said andy about um that just wet being worn out you know we tried ivf i think for over 10 years and it took quite a dramatic um episode in our married life to for us to finally realize that we were both absolutely knackered physically and mentally from the process mm. you know so um yeah but I, I just think it yeah anyway it just comes from frustration of i think you know i, would, I wouldn't say it's anger but i'd say it's frustration that boils over how's that yeah that makes a lot of sense to me as you said that and the phrase that came to my head was that not being part of the club so when you mm. see the car signs or baby on board or Mm. you're at events that says family friendly instead of welcoming instead of just friendly atmosphere there's a sense of just being excluded and, and it is that frustration of we're never going to join that we're never going to yeah. be part of that part of society or have those experiences and yeah i think it is frustration at not being able to make it happen so in a sense not fixing it or and it can then sort of boil over into anger either towards others which i've not released it's just played out in my head yeah or at myself in a sense of well i'm the failure it's what we're born to do in it as men as women yeah you have children it's evolutionary there's been millions of years of this and yeah. now i can't do it and that's the that's a really difficult sort of space to get to be in and then to come through and i think I'm probably still working my way through that, that sense of actually, I'm not a failure. This is just how it is. It's just unexplained in our case. There's no clear reasoning. And it's just, it is just really sad. And I think that is the end. That is, that's it about it. And, but it is also, yeah, frustrating that to, out of love, you get such sadness that you've got, yeah there's this this love for each other and also for children and it's just yeah it's never it's never going to happen and that's not enough to make it happen and mm. yeah and, in, and that when you sort of say about childhood there was this sense of if you want it enough or willed it enough it just happened but that's not the case and i think yeah and that took a long time to accept and this is where we're going to have to leave andy for now we'll have a link to his blog in our show notes as well as links to Dr. Robin Hadley and Rod Silver's socials. Now, next month is going to be huge. We are dedicating the whole show to World Childless Week. The founder, Stephanie Phillips, will be with us, as well as a showload of the World Childless Week champions. It's not often we get together, and I cannot wait. I'll try and be on my best behaviour, but I have an inkling that some of them may lead me astray. Now, don't forget... You'll find all our contact details at the website www.thefullstoppod.com so please drop us a line or two. We love hearing from you. And as always, 
it's important for us to let you know you are not alone. They, they say men don't talk, but I think we've really uh, talked quite a lot, and that's uh, quite a myth about men. They're just not heard, uh, used to being listened to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cut that in. And we need to create that voice for men to be able to feel they can. <laughs>